Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 71. Shavim Echad. Shana Tova! <laughs> That's Hebrew. <laughs> Happy New Year. Yeah, happy Jewish New Year, Shana Tova. I hope everybody had their apples dipped in honey last night. Yeah, it's all about having something sweet. I actually cooked for the first time and used all our wedding registry, uh, I don't know, utensils that I never have used for two and a half years. But I hope everybody has an exciting Jewish New Year coming up. We have some pretty sweet things happening in the next couple of months that we're excited to share with everybody. Nice tie-in. Thanks. (laughs) I know. I think like the most exciting news of the year is um, that Beyond Babel is officially opening off-Broadway in New York City. So for those who don't know, Lindsay and I, we produce live shows, mostly circus and dance and our current and biggest baby is this show called Beyond Babel. We created it, uh, we opened it really last year in September in San Diego. It ran for six months and did 125 performances. The show is this super cool hip hop dance show with 12 of the best dancers in the game at the moment. And the exciting news is that we get to bring it to New York for a five month run off Broadway. I'm very excited. I hope everyone can see it because it is one of those shows that just feels very um i don't know like it changes your life in a small way after you see it yeah somebody described the show as a healing experience which i feel like it is in a way i know a lot of you guys are more circus fans than say dance or theater but to me what makes this show special is just the insanely high technical caliber of these dancers there's a good amount of acrobatics We try to use some of the storytelling devices you see in contemporary circus and merge them with uh, this type of urban dance. Uh, It's really nothing that I think people have seen before. You can find info about the show on our website, hideawaycircus.com. There's a link to lots of videos of the cast dancing. Uh, You know, we haven't really put out a podcast in a while, but part of the reason for that last year was because we were making a documentary. So uh, we have a seven-part behind-the-scenes documentary of how we made that show that you can go online and and check out. But hopefully for those of you guys who are based in the East Coast, you'll have the chance to come and see our stuff live, maybe meet us uh, at one of the shows (laughs) and tell us what you think. (laughs) The show, uh, the first performance is January 21st, official opening night is February 2nd. The theater is located in downtown New York in part of Greenwich Village. The venue is called... The Gym at Judson. It's hosted a bunch of uh, previously super successful off-Broadway shows there. So we're pumped to be going into that venue. You can get tickets on the show's website, beyondbabbleshow.com. And if you use the promo code podcast at checkout, you get 10% off your tickets. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> you learn something new every day. <laughs> you do. Um, and I think we have a very fun like first podcast back of this new year. We do. We have Daniel Lamar, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil. And I'll be honest, I feel like Lindsay did a way better job in this interview than I did because I was honestly pretty nervous to talk to somebody. I know, you were like, like, you were really, really nervous. Like, I'm usually pretty relaxed, but, you know, Cirque du Soleil has been such an inspiration to me my whole life. I only really fell in love with circus because I saw Cirque du Soleil's show Dralian when I was 10. And that really sparked my whole interest in in this world and, and a passion for it. So the chance to talk to the most senior person there uh, really uh, was a little nerve wracking, but you know, Lindsay did a great job, but I think we got some really fun answers and information out of him, particularly yeah. since we've talked about Cirque so much. But you know, it must be how, 
how you felt talking to Daniel Lamar was must be how I felt when I like first met Tom Schumacher at, in, at class. So we, you know, I think we've talked about Tom a bit, but Tom Schumacher runs Disney theatricals and he first worked on the movie side and worked on Lion King, the movie and rescuers Down under and then transitioned to the theater department and has produced every single Disney show on Broadway except Beauty and the Beast. So Lion King, Aladdin, Frozen, Mary Poppins, Newsies, Little Mermaid, Tarzan, you know, I mean, it's he's an incredible person. But when I've had to introduce myself to him in class at Columbia the first day, I was like, I forgot my name. And we'll have Tom on the podcast later this season, particularly because Daniel Lamar today talks about whether Cirque du Soleil's <laughs> O or Disney's The Lion King is the biggest and most successful live theatrical show. It depends on the way you measure it. But yeah, you know, getting the chance to talk to the most senior person at a company that's produced all your very favorite shows is uh, is nerve-wracking, but yeah, I think is. pretty good. But also what's interesting about Tom and why he ties in to Cirque du Soleil is, and we got to see a clip of it yesterday when we when we actually saw Tom, he, he when he was 20, was the first person in L.A. to help bring Cirque du Soleil to the U.S. And they had a very small tent. It looked like the Smirkus, Cirque, Circus Smirkus sized tent. And um, you see Tom and Guy like talking about what what is Cirque du Soleil and like telling the public what it is. And I mean, it's just crazy to see that versus what it is today. Which is this mega, mega mammoth production Massive. company that owns Blue Man Massive. Group now. They yep. own... Uh, the Illusionists. Uh, they it have a company called V Star, which does Paw Patrol. If you've got kids, that's a Nickelodeon show. And of course, they produce their Cirque du Soleil shows. Yeah. And we talk about all that. We talk about virtual reality. We talk about their work with robots. I don't know if you saw that, but they've got some shows of robots coming yeah. up. The thing, it's very, they're in a very interesting point right now. And talking to him was, you know, I think you get a lot of the answers that you already knew. But hearing it from his mouth and how he talks about it is, Always interesting, even if you maybe already know the information. Um, we also did see Circus Marcus this this summer. Yeah, we went, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe in its last two weeks of performances. Yeah, it was very great, as always. What was the show called again this year? I don't remember the name of the show, but the theme was Carnival. It might have been called Carnival. Was it? it was really great, as always. Very cute. I, I'm going to post some of the stories I have on my on the Instagram. And we got Troy Wonderly, of course, the artistic director of Smirkus on the podcast also later this season. Yes, coming up. You know, we've recorded a bunch of episodes already. One of our challenges before was trying to record episodes on the fly, but now we've built up this database of people who will be releasing slowly over this, the fall of 2019. Yes. And what's super cool about the next couple of episodes is we have a sponsor, (laughs) Circus Talk, the online circus employment tool and resource platform. Uh, You can check it out on circustalk.com. But we're going to point out a few things that we saw on there recently. In casting news, you know, because I am an amateur circus performer in my head. Um, So if you are actually a circus performer, they are hosting um, auditions for Marvel Universe Live. And I guess it's going to be in New York City in November. But if you go on Circus Top, you you can see a job posting. And if you're a stage manager, Cirque du Soleil is looking for a stage manager for their new show in uh, Disney World and Disney Springs in Orlando, Florida. Where Lanuba used to be. I would have I would totally, totally submit for this if I was a stage manager. I love Disney and Disney and Cirque together. Sounds like a dream job. 
Yeah, in addition to having job postings on Circus Talk, they also have an events section. Uh, one of the things that really piqued my interest is they posted about this large circus memorabilia auction happening on October 4th. Uh, it's in England, but you can bid online if you're like me and you love old circus books and circus posters and memorabilia, particularly European memorabilia. Go online and find out find out those dates and details. Are you going to bid? Depends on what they have, but I'm definitely going to look at the uh, the inventory and go through it. We live in a small apartment in Brooklyn, so don't don't go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're already pretty full. Uh, they also have uh, another special event coming up, a rigging and risk management class or a series of classes that are being hosted at NECA, the New England Center for the Circus Arts. We've had one of the founders, Elsie, on before to talk about them. But if you're the kind of person who is interested in rigging or you rig your own equipment or you want to know about how to be safe in this business, this seems like something for you. And didn't I say there's a new insurance for circus artists? It's not exactly a new insurance, but they have a really interesting article where they interview a couple insurance carriers about if you're an individual performer, how you can get your act covered uh, insurance-wise. If you're a small circus troupe, how to manage that. Uh, which, you know, for us as people who do producing and general management of shows, actually quite an interesting article. Yeah, even if you're a performer, though, who has, you know, special performances and is doing it for a conduct club or something like that to carry your own insurance is most often required. And not that expensive, really. That's good. So you can find out all about those articles, events, and jobs online at circustalk.com. Thank you guys for sponsoring us. And should we get into the podcast? Should we jump into the interview? Yeah. But... Before we do that, make sure to Twitter tweet us. I mean, who has Twitter anymore? I, I do. Don't. I like Twitter. I don't. It's just like ranting. And it's so hard to keep up. It's good for conversations. If so you, you have can some Twitter tweet reactions. Josh. <laughs> and you please, please, please can rate us on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, or email us at hello at com. Here is our interview with Danielle Lebon. So my first question is, what was the very first time you saw any kind of circus? Oh, I was uh, I was a kid, uh, and there was a traditional uh, little circ show coming in my little town, uh, which is way way uh, back from from Montreal, and uh, that was my first experience, and I was very very impressed by the quality of the acrobats. I was not so keen about the elephants and stuff, but I was I was really impressed by all the acrobatic acts that I had seen then. Do you remember what the name of the company was? Uh, it was called Kermes. It was a, it was a little uh, Canadian company uh, traveling in secondary markets. I'm I'm guessing you also you're from Canada. Did you grow up in Quebec near Montreal? Yeah, yeah. I spend all my life here. Yes. Prior to joining Cirque du Soleil, how did your uh, life unfold? Uh, I I was uh, the owner of a public relations firm. Uh, and uh, I spent most of my life in communication and then in the television business uh, until I joined Cirque uh, almost 20 years ago. When you were little, did you ever feel like you were going to run a massive circus company? <laughs> I never thought that I will run with the circus, no. <laughs> uh, and and it was, it was a, a huge game changer in my life 20 years ago. How did you know it was the, the right move from you, for you, going from doing a public relations to, to joining a circus that wasn't yeah. as big as it is now? Yeah, the, the interesting story between Guy Laliberté, the founder of Cirque, and myself, is that Guy founded Cirque in 1984. 
And in 1986, I was the owner of the largest public relations firm in Canada. And I did a mandate for Guy, and he couldn't pay me because Cirque was not making any money at the time. And then 13 years later, I became the CEO of a television network, and I called Guy, and I said, Guy, and by then, Cirque was already very successful. And I said, Guy, I'm now the CEO of this TV network in Canada, and I would love to have your TV rights. And he said, oh, it's going to be very complicated because now we have this international firm representing us. And, uh, and I said, Guy, no sweat, but if ever it's available, let me know. And the following day, I received the most touching letter from Guy to his marketing vice president at the time saying, this guy, speaking of me, helped me 20 years ago, and uh, he wants to have my TV rights, let's do what we have to do. And that's when I started to see Guy on a more regular basis, and four years later, he approached me to join the circus. That's that's so crazy. What do you mean by TV rights? Was that for broadcasting the Cirque du Soleil shows? Yeah, yeah. We uh, after we we you know we've been producing uh, shows of Cirque du Soleil, and then I start seeing Guy on a more regular basis. And typical Guy called me. He was in London, and he called me in my Montreal office, and he said, "Oh, I had this amazing flash last night." And I said, "What is it?" He says, "You're going to join the circus." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was 20 years ago. So when you were little, did you have any interest in, in the arts at all? Or was it really mainly like journalism focused? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I was one of the few guys when I was at college that I was playing football, but I was also an actor in the, uh, <laughs> in the college uh, troupe. And I was one of the few guys that could hang out with the artists, and, and, and the sports guys at the same time. And when you think, when you think of it, that's what Cirque du Soleil is all about. It, yeah, it's, totally. a lot of, it's a lot of artists that comes from the sports world. So uh, I always laugh about it because I said, maybe, maybe that's why I'm so happy here because I have my two patients, uh, passion <laughs> being fed at the same time, my sports background and my artistic background. Yes, that's what I think people don't, because my background is really theater, and I started learning about circus when I met Josh six years ago, but I think people don't understand that circus artists are really also athletes, and it's a whole part of the circus performance part that just audiences don't necessarily get. Even when you watch it, you're like, wow, they're so so talented, but until I really started getting into it, I didn't realize how um, you know they train just like athletes and they have to keep their bodies up and you know it's different from actors yeah uh, and, and and you're right and people forget that a lot of our uh, artists are former Olympic athletes uh, we do a lot of scouting every time there is an Olympic uh, you know they come from gymnastic uh, they come from you know a lot of different uh, acrobatic uh, skiing a lot of different uh, discipline from Olympics and I noticed researching a little bit about your new show run in Las Vegas that you're also casting people who weren't aren't just circus performers but are also uh, stunt men and women. Yeah, it's a big departure uh, from from what we do, and uh, that's the pressure we have in Las Vegas because it will be our seventh show running at the same time, and it's very very important that each show is very distinctive. 
So that's why we came up with the idea of doing a show that was inspired by Hollywood stunts. And, uh, and here we are uh, doing a show that will not have a traditional acrobatic act. But when you think of it, when you do a stunt with motorcycle, and you, you know, we're not that far from our performance world, except that here it's not traditional circus. It's, uh, in fact, it's not a circus show. It's what we call a, a live action thriller. And it's, uh, it's an hybrid between a movie and a live show. I feel like when I saw Ka for the first time, that's I felt like I was watching an action movie. I mean, that show is like insanely breathtaking. And then you have the wall that twists and the fireworks. And I was like, this is insane. Because I only saw it maybe, I don't know, three or four years ago for the first time, um, which I think is good as an adult. I could appreciate it so much more than if I was younger. Ron looks really, really cool. But I was reading that you really kind of but I had a hand in the love and the Michael Jackson show. Yeah, again, uh, each show has to be distinctive, and that's why we came up with uh, with the Beatles and and MJ and uh, and Ka brought us somewhere differently, and so did humanity. So, so we we now have a full range of uh, of different live shows uh, that uh, is attracting uh, different uh, demographic. The live action thriller as a show concept, I don't know if I've heard that before. How did you guys sort of develop that kind of idea of taking something cinematic and putting it on stage and sort of adding to that? How did that affect uh, the theater design? Because every time you guys do a show in Vegas, the theater is essentially built around the show concept. Yeah, each uh, theater that we have in Vegas is, uh, is purposely built for the theme of the show. And that will be the case here again with, with Ron. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, it will bring you in a totally different uh, universe. And that's also important because we believe in today's world, uh, people want to feel part of the show. And that's why uh, we uh, want Run to be immersive, that people are surrounded by, uh, you know, a lot of visual effect, uh, a lot of action, and uh, and it's happening not only on stage, but it's happening in the crowd as well. So that's going to be a totally different experience uh, for for the crowd. And when does run open? We're opening on November 14. So if uh, if you see me being anxious right now, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's because it's because we're sweating. Uh, you know, uh, and and after 20 years, I never get used of the pre-production mode uh, because in the last month, that's normally where the magic operates, and that's mm -hmm. where you have to do tough calls. That's why that's where you have to tweak the show, do some changes, and uh, it's a very very intense moment, and you never know. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think of a show. What matters is what people think of the show. And that's why uh, on November 14, I will be watching the public reaction as much as I will be watching the show because, because that's very important to me. Do you guys do any kind of demographic tests with your audience when it's going through those sort of preview early performance periods? Or is it all sort of intuition from the senior staff and the artistic staff 
sort of just gauging yeah, it, gauging reaction it's it start the creative process start with uh, intuition uh, because we don't we want to keep the creative process as free as possible uh, the freedom of our creators is very very important but when it comes to closer and closer to the show uh, we would like we like to test uh, with the target audience to make sure that we're not off uh, in uh, in our intuition. And uh, frankly, most of the time so far, we have been confirmed by the target audience that we were coming with the right content. But you cannot take it for granted. And we never take anything for granted at CERC. That's why we're challenging ourselves all the time. What do you think the hardest part of producing a show in Vegas is since it's such a specific market? Yeah, no, it is for sure. Uh, but as you know, we have influence uh, live entertainment in Las Vegas. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 50% of the tickets sold in Las Vegas are for one of our uh, Cirque du Soleil show. <laughs> so we have a very good knowledge of, uh, of, of that audience. Uh, we also have an amazing partnership with the uh, MGM Resorts that host all the shows that we have in Las Vegas. And with their support and our knowledge of the live entertainment in Vegas, uh, we are uh, the dominant player uh, in that market. For people coming into Vegas, it must be very intimidating because you really do have like the Cirque shows and then you have the Spiegel World shows. And, you know, what's the what's the market for other types of shows and I think I would be very intimidated bringing a show to to Vegas now. Having said that, do you if you if somebody was going to see one Cirque du Soleil show while they go to Vegas their very first time, is there a show that that you'd pick? Um, it depends of of the taste, but 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 I have to admit that uh, statistically, uh, because of the, the the strength of the brand of the show. O is normally the one that people want to see first. And, uh, and after that, they will go see the other shows. Uh, and, and I would say between Ka, Love, and, and, and MJ, uh, you know, you see a lot of people wanting to see all those shows. But when it comes to the preferred show, surprisingly, uh, Mystère, which is our first mm. show that we built in Vegas 25 years ago, remain very, very popular and uh, one of the favorite of our, uh, of our fan. If, if you're a typical Cirque du Soleil fan, uh, Mister uh, is the one that you like to see because it's a classic of Cirque du Soleil. I have to see that and I still have to see O. The only time I've seen the O theater was for one drop because our cast was actually performing in one drop this year in the boat piece, the dancers. Yeah. Yep. So that was our the cast from our show. And uh, we went to see them. And I was like, wow, this theater is amazing. And seeing our, our cast on the O stage was like insane. But now I have to go back and see O properly. <laughs> you, you, you have to see that show for sure. Uh, it's a masterpiece. People don't realize it because a lot of people are talking, when they're talking about success, they're talking about, uh, you know, Cats, or they're talking about Phantom of the Opera mm -hmm. or Lion Kings. But if you take one single show, uh, O is the most important uh, ticket selling show in the world right now. You mean just in, in ticket sales, or how do you measure that? Yeah, in, in terms of ticket sales. Wow. Uh, because Lion King, Lion King 
sell more mm-hmm. tickets than us, but they have nine uh, duplication of the show. But if you take just one single theater, there's no, no other theater in the world that sell more tickets than the O Theater in Las Vegas. How do you, you know, because the show's been open for so long and you sell such a high volume of tickets, how do you keep the marketing fresh and, and think about how you bring people back and change the message from 10 years ago or however long it opened to the 2019 audience? Yeah, the O as the status of being the must-see show. So therefore, the word of mouth of O is, 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 is making uh, most of our marketing because, you know, if you would call a friend and you would say, I'm going to Vegas, what show should I see? Probably nine out of 10, the first mention will be O. I mean, that's really impressive to have those statistics, especially because Lion King, you know, I think when people come to New York, people are like, you have to see Lion King. But speaking of, of shows in New York, you guys have also a show coming to New York for the, for the holiday season. Yeah, we have, uh, we have a show coming at the uh, Madison Square Garden. It's a Christmas show. Uh, we're really looking forward to open it. Uh, it should, uh, it should uh, you know, be quite successful, I hope. What did you feel like your experience with Paramore in New York was? Because New York, like Vegas, is also such a specific audience and market. Yeah, Paramore was a very interesting story because uh, uh, it was working very well. We were selling a, a ton of tickets for the show. So, But what happened is that the uh, owner of the theater uh, wanted to recuperate his, uh, his, his theater uh, to do uh, Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and because of that, we had to leave the theater. Uh, the good news is, uh, is because it was uh, very successful in New York, then we had uh, an opportunity to remake the show in Hamburg. And so Paramore is now uh, having a permanent home in uh, Hamburg, in Germany. How do you pick those cities that can house a permanent show versus ones that you would just tour to for, for a month or two? Obviously, New York and London are... Uh, and Vegas are probably obvious ones, but Hamburg maybe not so much, at least for the um, the English-speaking audience. Yeah, Hamburg, uh, interestingly enough, uh, is the Broadway of Germany. So uh, people don't realize that, but there is probably 14 theaters in Hamburg that has uh, permanent musical shows. So, so in the musical worlds, you have the West End in London, you have Broadway, mm. obviously, in New York, but you have Hamburg and Germany. So all the German people that wants to see a musical, uh, they have to go to Hamburg. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting city. And uh, it has become a tourist city because of their uh, theater uh, neighborhood. And I'm, I just can't imagine your, your travel schedule because I'm also reading that you're opening another show, a new show <laughs> in Asia. I, I hope I'm getting the name right. I tried to translate it, but the land of fantasy in the, the X theater. That's correct. Uh, it's a huge show. Uh, it's of it the caliber massive. of Ka in terms of uh, level of production. And it's uh, presented in uh, Hangzhou uh, in a purposely built theater. Uh, it's uh, probably our uh, largest uh, production so far. Uh, we opened uh, last August and we are now establishing the brand of Cirque du Soleil through that show in uh, Hangzhou. Can you explain 
the seating configuration because it seems like the seats are a massive part of the show. Yeah, what's interesting is uh, uh, because of the configuration of the building where we had to build a theater, uh, it, it was kind of difficult to build a theater uh, in a proscenium way like a normal theater. So we came with this idea of splitting the audience in two and having two rotating seats uh, that people can see uh, the show from, uh, from different parts. So for instance, when the show starts, uh, you will be uh, seeing one portion of the show in one section and a different portion of the show in the other section. And then all of a sudden, the seats are, are, are turning and, and you discovered that there is another audience in front of you. And that's part of the concept of the show. It's the Western world meeting with the Chinese world. Oh, cool. We had a uh, this dance show that we had in San Diego that they performed at One Drop. We had this idea of doing moving seats, but forward and backwards, so laterally. And it was never quite working, and we had to have people pushing it and pulling it. And we eventually just were like, oh, let's just keep them stationary. So I can't imagine the technical requirement that it takes to do this whole moving seats thing. Have you seen Soldier Orange in Amsterdam? I did, yes. That was a crazy, that's crazy to have the spinning effect as an audience member. Yeah, yeah, no, that was really impressive. Uh, I would have to say that our technology obviously is uh, more advanced and uh, the size <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is much bigger, but you're right, that show was a great show. I really enjoy it. Oh, well, we'll have to go. To, we have so many trips to take to go see all these new uh, Cirque shows. So just as your, you know, your position within the company, how, how directly can you be involved with three shows that are, you know, not just three, many more shows than that, but ex for example, three new shows that are all over the world? How do you delegate? What kind of, you know, departments do you have underneath you to, to balance that kind of workload? Yeah, because of the size of the company now, I have about 20 vice presidents reporting to me. And uh, I also have a COO who is looking at the day-to-day -day of, uh, of the business. So my job is, is, is more uh, business development and relationship with our partners, and uh, so I, which gives me the opportunity to think about the future of the organization and also work uh, with our creative people uh, to develop uh, new content. So I'm not involved myself in the content, I'm involved in reviewing the content. Do you feel like your leadership role in the company changed when he sold the company and TPG kind of took over his portion of the company? Yeah, that was an interesting experience for me because uh, you, you never know what will happen to you when there is a transaction. <laughs> and right. I spent 15 years working side by side with Guy and uh, enjoying it uh, immensely. Uh, so when, when the transaction happened, uh, I, I was happily uh, surprised that TPG wanted me to remain as the leader, and more importantly, that they gave me more support uh, financially that I never had, which allow us to do some acquisition, which allow us to develop more shows. So what uh, that could have been a very, uh, you know, sad 
thing for me end up uh, being uh, a very good news, and I'm uh, I'm very happy with the actual situation I'm in. Can you tell us a little bit about why Cirque du Soleil is doing these acquisitions and how Blue Man Group or V-Star, for example, fit into the bigger Cirque du Soleil family? Yeah, first and foremost, we have a very unique touring business. We are the only company in the world that tour in 450 cities, uh, which oh means that, that we tour you know, almost everywhere. You know, you would take a big rock concert uh, group like you two, uh, and they will probably tour in 50 cities, and they would say that it was a global tour. Uh, imagine uh, how global is our tour when I'm <laughs> telling you that we're touring in 450 cities. So I made a long story to tell you that this capability of touring uh, give us uh, a great uh, leverage when you buy uh, new content such as uh, Bloom and Group and or V-Star because most of those companies are uh, internationally uh, you know, uh, focused for de new development, but they don't have the leverage to develop uh, the way we are developing. So that's very easy for us to take new contents like Blue Man or V-Star and, uh, and, and increase uh, in an exponential way uh, their reach uh, internationally. Do you feel like the touring market in the U.S., because on this podcast, we talk a lot about circus in America, which is in such a different state than it is in Europe or in Canada or Australia. And do you feel like when you're touring in a tent in the U.S., is it more difficult? Uh, it is difficult to find good sites, uh, because as you know, the real estate business is developing at a very rapid pace, that the big cities are growing at a very rapid pace. So it's difficult for us to find good sites uh, in, uh, in, in large cities. Uh, but the advantage of, of touring with our own big top is that you control 100% of mm. your uh, revenue stream. And, uh, and, and, you know, as long as we can find uh, a, a reasonable good site is in, in the city, uh, we will continue to, uh, to tour the way we're touring right now. And going back just to the acquisitions for one moment, Blue Man Group is clearly this amazing piece of IP, and V-Star has, has shows that have individual IP, but is there a way you would describe the kinds of shows that you're looking for that would fit into the Cirque du Soleil family in the future? Are they more, you know, I would say like Blue Man Group is non-verbal, also super visual effects driven versus, say, um, a traditional movie or play, or would that fit into the, into the Cirque du Soleil model? Yeah, we, we like to look to content that we think we can influence creatively and then tour globally. So for Blue Men, uh, and, and, and uh, we're going to launch a new Blue Men show uh, in the next few weeks, uh, we oh. think that if we put our creative uh, team behind it, that we can bring the content to, to, to the next level. Uh, and uh, so we like to look to content that are very, very different from us, but that has some gene that is, uh, is, is not dissimilar. What I mean by that is Blue Man has no language. Uh, Blue Man has a brand that uh, can be leveraged internationally that fit uh, properly with our artistic values. Uh, 
Uh, we recently uh, uh, bought a magic company that is producing the illusionist. The illusionist has the uh, ambition to come to the to become to the magic world what Cirque du Soleil has become uh, in in the circus world. And what they do is that it's not one star in a magic show; it's several magicians in each show, which is not dissimilar than what we do in the acrobatic world. So we like to look at content uh, moving forward that has the potential to be developed uh, globally, but that has the artistic value that uh, that we uh, that we recognize. The Illusions did a like a short stint on Broadway a few years ago, right? Yeah, it's coming on Broadway uh, every Christmas uh, period. Is it going to the one of the Nederlander theaters again? Yeah, I don't remember the name, but yes, we will be on Broadway this year as well. So many Christmas uh, shows to choose from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, because Blue Man Group is in New York all yeah, the time too, Blue so Man that's Group, at least yeah. three. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I, I was listening to you talk about in another interview and I've seen the actual experiences for are uh, virtual reality and how Cirque du Soleil is, has stepping into that. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see virtual reality playing into the future of the entertainment industry. Yeah, the, the one day that we will not have to wear big goggle to, <laughs> to have uh, virtual reality and as a matter of fact, it's not goggle, but it's it's really a big, uh, big uh, helmet that you have to, yeah. to wear. <laughs> so the one day that you will have to only wear some uh, glasses, uh, and I think it's not uh, it's not that far away. Uh, then uh, virtual reality can become an additional technological tool uh, that we could use, and we're looking into it. Uh, we've been working uh, in a in a workshop with uh, Samsung. Uh, we will we have been also working on the Hololens uh, technology with Microsoft. So we're on the lookout all the time to find technologies that can enhance the human uh, performance. Uh, but in terms of the virtual reality, uh, I don't think the technology is there yet to get involved in live show entertainment. I think it starts to provide some interesting uh, experience, uh, but, uh, but not, uh, not good enough for us right now to mix and add to our uh, live shows. It feels to me maybe like augmented reality might be closer or at least more, more easily seen. You could imagine an augmented reality set where you're sitting uh, in the Cirque du Soleil seats and you see this crazy virtual set behind the behind the performers is that the kind of direction the way you see these things playing in or do you see them being really yeah, standalone we do, we experiences do, we do use more and more in our scenography uh visual uh effect uh and uh, if you would see our newest uh, ice show uh, because we have produced our first ice show uh literally the ice ring is uh filled uh, with a lot of visual effect, you don't rec you don't realize anymore that you are on the high swing. You have the feeling that the high swing has become a giant screen on which we we, we project. So all those technologies to us we see it as an enhancement uh, of of our artistic content, but not as the not as the main course, but certainly mm -hmm. as a as as a good company 
to, uh, to enhance uh, the main uh, artistic meal. I'm sure researching and developing these, these new technologies is uh, exciting, but also risky. Are there any funny or interesting historical examples of Cirque du Soleil uh, investing in some kind of exciting technology that didn't pan out? We obviously, if you look to all our theaters in Las Vegas, those were huge uh, technologically uh, advanced theater. You know, you can take the O theater or the Ka theater. There is nothing else like that in the world. Mm -hmm. And we push the envelope of technology by, by, by developing those. Uh, when we have produced our uh, avatar show uh, and working with James Cameron, uh, we have also experienced some very interesting technology. So we don't like to develop ourselves technology because we're not expert in new technologies, but we love to work with partners that has a good knowledge and good capability in new technologies. And that's why we've been working lately with the uh, Boston Group. We are working with James Cameron. We're working with Samsung. Those are the type of partners that can give, bring us technology without us uh, spending a fortune on, on trying to do some fundamental research. Is the Boston Group the, the robotics company? Yep. Oh, that's exciting. So you guys are going to have some, uh, some robotic, robotic animals instead of real ones, maybe. Yeah, we, uh, again, uh, we, we, we can think of very fun uh, interactivity between uh, our artists and robots and very fun and interesting experience from an audience point of view. And you, you're bringing back Alegria, right? You, you rebooted it. An old classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it... Uh, it broke uh, it broke uh, record sales in Montreal, and we're now in in Toronto and moving after that in the U.S. market. Uh, the good news there is that that was that was a huge risk uh, because Ooh. it's such a classic of Cirque du Soleil, and uh, that show was uh, produced 25 years ago. So reproducing it, uh, we had to make sure that nothing looked old in that show. And that was a big creative challenge to to reproduce, uh, you know, that that show, but at the same time uh, make it modern and 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 look uh, 2019, and uh, and and that was a challenge uh, internally. There was a lot of debate about how mm -hmm. to produce the show, and at the end of the day, I think you have a modern version of uh, Alegria that is working very, very well right now. That must have been a very confidence-boosting moment for, for the company, realizing that the 20, 30, maybe 40 shows, at least the ones that I'm aware of that you guys have done, can always be brought back and revived, and that this IP doesn't just have to exist for one uh, one version of the show, but can, can come back many years later. So everything that you create and invest in, similar to traditional IP, like Beauty and the Beast, for example, can come back 20 years later, as can Alegria, or say, Dralian, or I don't know. That must be a, a very reaffirming moment for the business model and for for you as CEO. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a risky decision, but I'm glad we we made it. And uh, to be honest, uh, I have to say that a lot of people were asking us uh, to bring back Alegria, so it was almost like on popular demand we decided <laughs> to bring it back. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought it back because I can see it now. <laughs> Oh, I saw it. I saw it when I was touring the U.S. the first time. Awesome, <laughs> awesome show. 
Well, Danielle, thank you so much for, for talking with us. We end each interview with uh, the same three questions for, for each guest. Uh, the first one being, is there a piece of advice, really good or really bad, that you've gotten that has stuck with you? Yeah, I, I think the best advice I've got was from uh, Guy Liberté, the, the founder of Cirque. Uh, he was uh, he was uh, he, he told me that I have to make sure every day that uh, I, I I was pushing the boundaries of creativity of people, and it means by that uh, being very provocative uh, and uh, entertaining a lot of debate, and uh, and and that was a tough uh, task to learn that from him, but uh, but it's probably one of the best piece of advice I never had. The second question is, is there a book or a movie or some kind of artistic inspiration other than Cirque du Soleil that you would recommend somebody? Yeah, uh, I enjoy uh, reading uh, Creative Inc., Creativity Inc. Oh, that's uh, one of my favorite books. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, uh, we spend quite a bit of time collaborating between Pixar and, and Cirque just exchanging because uh, we respect each other or creative forces and uh, and and I really enjoy reading that book. Yeah, that's a really I just suggested that book to someone this weekend because they were talking about creativity and how do you find it and I was like you should read this book. What do you feel like you learned from Pixar's approach? Uh, it's uh, it's it's the their uh, commitment to the creative process. It's uh, how uh, the business people uh, have been uh, positioning themselves as supporting their creators and not the other way around. And uh, having seen, you know, the way they works, uh, they work, uh, that, was, uh, that was very inspiring to me. So our last question is, on this podcast, we like to get our current guests' ideas on future guests and a lot of people suggested you, which is why I'm very glad we finally got to speak with you and learn from your brain about how you think about Cirque du Soleil and, and circus. So is there anyone who you suggest that we should talk to next? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to say, but, but I would say a, a director like Robert Lepage, with whom I had the, the, the chance to work, uh, because what's good about a guy like Robert is that not only had he produced great shows for us, as a matter of fact, he was the director of Ka, but he has also worked on uh, opera at the uh, mm -hmm. Metropolitan Opera, and, uh, and, and he also worked on some movies, and he has produced his own uh, theater act. Uh, so he has uh, a broad of different perspective on live shows that could be mm -hmm. very interesting. That's a great suggestion. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for talking with us and giving us so much time. It was a pleasure to, to talk with you and, and learn about Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, and congratulations on all the new shows. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. And that was our interview with Daniel Lamar, CEO of Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> Just a little intimidating. Just a little, but I think we got some interesting uh, info out of him. We'll be dissecting what's going on with Cirque du Soleil in a future episode. Yeah. I wonder if they care what we think. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Here's what we think, Cirque. But if you like our podcast, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes. And if you want to talk to us, you can always email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. 
and a big thanks to our sponsor, Circus Talk. Our podcast is now also available on Circus Talk, the international circus community's online resource and employment tool. If you're not a member yet, register and find your spotlight with Circus Talk today. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you guys in the next one. Bye.